Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Today I am joined by Joe Johnson. Joe is a clinical psychologist who specializes in MS and brain injury. She's written um, a range of family-related publications and is now offering psychological intervention and workplace training using the Acceptance Commitment Therapeutic Model, which is a more recent version of CBT. Joe is also a keen writer and has released several publications on brain injury for families, along with, in more recent years, turning her hand to creative writing, having published two psychological novels, Surviving Me in 2019 and more recently, Surviving Her, which um, Amy, my wife, read very quickly and loved. So... Thanks for that. Well, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Joe, um, that's it's quite a, an introduction. You've been a busy person over your career, involved in lots of different things. That's because I'm quite old now. So <laughs> plenty of time. <laughs> um, well, Joe, I really enjoyed meeting you a couple of months or so ago. Um, in a, a farm shop in Sussex as we had coffee and talked about psychology and Christian faith and the work that you're involved with. And I know there's loads of things, loads of things that you've been involved with and are aware of and think about that are gonna help people today. Um, I wonder there's a good place to start. Uh, something you talked about when we met was the idea of PPE for the mind, protective equipment, if you like, for our psychological well-being and um, said you were using that phrase long before the pandemic popularised PPE. And why don't you maybe start by talking to us a bit about that, um, you know, how you use that in your practice. Okay, well, PPE for the mind is based on acceptance and commitment therapy, which, as I think you've said, is the most, or one of the most up-to-date forms of CBT, which a lot of people will have heard of CBT. But for those people who haven't, it's cognitive behavioural therapy, which really um, sounds much more high level than it is. Cognitive refers to thinking, behaviour obviously refers to doing stuff. So it, cognitive behavioural means that your thinking and your actions are very closely entwined. So the acceptance and commitment therapy is very much along those line so um yes i was in um i got into act as it's called affectionately by people that use it um i don't know perhaps about 15 years ago now when it wasn't so well heard of it's really creeping into many areas including the nhs and i think that's good i think it's a good model of therapy for all of us flawed humans um so you can use it in everyday sense, it also is a great way of treating clinical diagnoses like anxiety and depression. So that was my starting point. I loved that model. It really helped me. It really helped me see things in a different light and work with some of my long-standing, besetting, sinful ways, as Christians we would describe them. Um, so, and then I was uh, chatting to a neighbour of mine who was quite senior in Hampshire Constabulary and talking about how useful this would be for training police officers who understandably are quite often quickly traumatised 
by the things they have to address. And so um, I managed to win a contract to work with them and we wanted to do it, ACT can be used very preventatively to help people understand. Most of us don't understand that we've even got a mind. Um, you know, I certainly was never taught that in school. I knew very quickly I had a body. People preached to me about how I should treat my body, what my body should look like. Other people made comments on where my body fitted in terms of big, small, tall, thin, um, but no one talked to, be, to me about my mind. So I very much feel these principles are things we should be speaking to young children about. So we wanted to use it preventatively. I'd been using it a lot with um, people with MS and also frontline NHS professionals. So when I started to work with the police, I realised quickly that they were mostly men and mostly were not naturally interested in what my husband calls ology rubbish. Um, so I had to think of something to label it as that might be more attractive. So in the police, they call their um, stab vests and um, various other bits of physical equipment um, PPE. I'd never heard of that term interestingly, um, whenever I started three or four years ago. Um, so constantly people would ask me, what is PPE? Um, so that isn't a problem anymore. <laughs> Everybody in the whole world knows what PPE is. And um, it's that sense, isn't it, of the masks, the sanitizers, the things that protect us against harm, against physical harm. And um, so PPE for the mind, which is a title I'm using in all sorts of contexts now, is around what, what could we know, what knowledge, what tools, what psychological equipment could help us protect our minds um, against harm. And I think the Bible has a lot to say about that. And the, the Bible has a lot to say about, you know, resisting the devil's evil ways. And personally, I think all the devil has to do really is to lie to us. He knows our minds as human beings are very vulnerable. And um, some of us have more vulnerable minds than others. But we are all vulnerable to lies about ourselves about other people, about the world in general, and the lies are always up in opposition to God's truth. So I kind of feel PPE for the mind, acceptance and commitment therapy tools are a great win for us as Christians. Mm. Oh, that's really helpful. And just even in the overview, it's, it's great to hear how you're using it in uh, in training and helping police officers as well um what, so you use the language then of, of the lies of the enemy and talking to christians but uh, the, obviously the, you wouldn't use that language in talking to the police or people who aren't believers um so what, is that experience of lies that we attribute to the enemy is that a, a common human experience yeah, yeah. so um in secular context i would talk about mind lies still um, I would talk, some people would just describe that as negative thoughts. So I think what most humans would acknowledge is the content of our minds are mostly negative. If you really face into, you know, if I put a memory stick in your head, my head, maybe even the Pope's head or whoever we consider to be way more saintly, um, there would be a lot of negative 
thoughts and feelings coming up minute by minute. Some people aren't realising that, but it, it's kind of there. So there's always a person in every PPE group that claims they have the most positive mind and they don't ever get negative thoughts. So I always wish them all the best. Um, personally, I would love to have a mind free of negative content um i don't see that as a as a popular thing and um the people that would support evolution would think that was because we've evolved to stay in group and to keep safe um i think we would see it slightly differently but often in secular training i will talk about um the way we've been designed the way we've been created and i've never had anybody mm. comment on that um say mm. so we're made in the image of god but deeply flawed aren't we and mm. um vulnerable to attack so yeah negative thoughts mind lies but um you know I don't know, regular things for me is, you know, it's not fair. Already this morning I've woken up and my husband's got a rather big issue going on within the church situation and um, he's taking up all the airtime. You know, we're supposed to be praying together and um, my mind is being sabotaged with what about me? What about my day? Um, you know, so it's, it's hard this being human, isn't it? Whether we're in families or single or in churches, Unless you stay in a cave by yourself, then you are going to have enormous cascades of negative thoughts and mm. feelings. And, and the devil uses that to take us off course, because the more we buy into that, the more we're going to behave in ways that are relationship damaging. Um, so, mm. and you know, it's a struggle within a marriage. So when you put all of us flawed humans into a church, or into a work context, we're kind of really stuffed, aren't we? Um, so <laughs> it's challenging. <laughs> and and one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the things that is really helpful is to realise that a lot of this, it's just not personal. You know, the way you relate to me or I relate to you, a lot of that isn't coming from you. You know, I, it's coming from, you know, I meet somebody and they will have an impact on me unconsciously and I can't help that. So, you know, if you're a, a woman, there's a lot of stuff about, oh my goodness, you know, she's got a nicer house than me, she's prettier than me, her children are better behaved than me, um, blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, a lot of men tell me that they're, if they're with somebody that looks more, um manly bigger stronger more of a gym body that you know they experience the same kind of thing and so a lot of what's happening when we meet other people mm. is we are being triggered into some unconscious defensive behavior that could be quite destructive in that relationship um, but we, if we're not conscious of it, we will be triggered all over the place, a bit like a bomb or a gun that's going off um, unsupervised, mm. and that can have mm. enormous consequences. So one of the key things about PPE for the mind is first learning, well, what do we all have going on? So, you know, we're all either firing off our values or we're firing off what we call... In, uh, among our psychology colleagues, our bottom left-hand corner, which relates to 
a tool called the matrix, but essentially it's around, we have inside of us thoughts, feelings, memories, emotions, and urges. Mm. And you can't see what that's going on for me. And I can't see what thoughts and feelings are going on for you. Um, and if we're not conscious of that, we can end up being triggered in quite negative ways. So one of the big things around PPE is first realising that as a human, you have that going on. You don't have a just have a body. If you have a body, you have a mind and it's doing stuff 24-7 and there's stuff going on. And, um, and we have been wired as very young people. So a lot of our neurological software, our psychological processing has been put inside of us by our flawed parents before the age of 10 or 11. And so, mm. you know, that's a problem. And, and if you're not conscious of what stuff you've got in that bottom left corner, you are going to be, other people are going to trigger that in you and you're going to respond in defensive or offensive ways that aren't going to be helpful in any context, whether that's at work, home or in a church context. Yeah, I, I mean, already, Joe, I just, I love what you're saying because, I mean, what you're doing in part is... um. You're, you're, you're putting words to experiences that everybody has or at least you know, and also what you're doing in doing that is you're validating experiences that we might have and saying this is common to every person, which ultimately allows us to come closer to each other, not push away from each other. Because, yeah, so actually yesterday I was talking to someone who was we were discussing church and the challenges of being in a church community where week in, week out, you're gathering for worship and week in, week out, you're thinking what other people, you're trying to guess what other people might be thinking about you. And some of those are positive, but a lot of those are negative. And, and that over time can be exhausting for people trying to belong to a church community where you're constantly second guessing what people are thinking, constantly thinking that they're judging or criticizing or critiquing you. And they may well be. But what 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 people do and what I've noticed, and maybe this is what we've experienced a bit post pandemic in churches, is that because of that dynamic and the complexities of that, people withdraw from community and they try to, uh, as you put it, live in a cave. Um, and yet, as you said, you can't live in a cave. And in fact, even if you did live in a cave, uh, you, that would create other problems for you. Um, so, I mean, I just I really appreciate you kind of putting language to that and acknowledging that. But that experience then of other, you know, constantly feeling like other people are making unconscious statements and questions about you. And the a response to that can be to withdraw from community Um what tools could you offer to perhaps suggest that withdrawing from communities not the answer because that's going to have different set of problems attached to it what how do you help people get to a place of a acceptance commitment therapeutic model if that makes sense <laughs> there's a lot there sorry <laughs> a couple of things there that might be helpful for people firstly mostly people are not thinking about you because they're thinking about themselves that's a besetting human pattern. So all the time you're thinking, how is she judging the room behind me? I haven't even noticed that because I'm looking at my own room and thinking, what is Jess thinking of the mess 
in my room and that's how we're rolling most of the time we're inward looking which is why we need to look up and out to stay healthy because nothing good will be found within us if you withdraw from church you'll get a whole set of other negative thoughts about no one loves me I'm not lovable um I knew it all along blah 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 and also you know we have no chance of getting fellowship or being built up or learning how to overcome our besetting patterns on our own that's not possible and I I think God um God is the best psychologist he he made our minds and he knows how we best function and he put us in families he put us in churches because that's how we get sanctified you know we get justified the day we get saved we get sanctified by having our awkward corners rubbed up against other people so um i guess what acceptance and commitment therapy would do would try and help you look at your own patterns first so who what what kind of people trigger me because it won't be everyone because um people that affirm me tell me i'm wonderful um they'll be good i'll run towards them like juicy ben and jerry's you know that's that's what i like um which is why often outside of the church we seek people who are like us we seek people that have the same opinions the same shopping habits the same ways of bringing up their children because that's very affirming and and we love it we absolutely love to be told that we're wonderful um because inside of us we have a gnawing feeling that we're not good enough and one of the things I do in every training group, partly for my own amusement, is I say at the end of the group, put your hand up if you don't have a version of the not good enough story. And no one has ever put their hand up. So by that, I would mean, you know, you don't have thoughts about yourself that I'm too small, too ugly, too fat, too rich, too poor, too clever, too posh, you know, it's astonishing. I have this privilege of seeing such a diverse range of people, people who are homeless and have nothing, to people who are well-known musicians, sculptors, fashion designers, who have everything from a material perspective. And whoever they are, I've never found someone who doesn't have a version of the not good enough story. The Bible would say that's there for a reason to point you to God. But humanly, it's a massive struggle. And and we all have different versions of that. And so we'll be triggered by different people. So if I have a sense of being unintelligent um, or overweight, I will be triggered probably by slim and intelligent people. They will make me feel on the back foot. It won't be anything to do with them. They'll just have to walk in the room and I will feel small. And so we first need to start noticing who, who makes me feel most not good enough um and and though you'll see patterns of people that make you feel for me i come from a very council house social housing kind of background i ended up in a profession where lots of people are oxford and cambridge educated i spent the first 30 years of my career and it still pops up feeling, I am stupid, I know nothing, I'm so politically unaware. So if somebody um, is very politically aware, very socially adept, very well educated, instantly my backstory is, you know, this isn't good. I feel 
scared that's the best way I can you know my inner child which never goes away that's hard luck for all of us there is an inner child in all of us a little boy or a little girl who is scared and vulnerable and and that inner child reflects our own inner child experience you know what life was like for us growing up um, there will be people who are Christians who grew up feeling like the weird Christian in the class. There will be people that felt like the poor kid. There'll be people that, that felt stupid or too clever or too geeky. You know, so many of our inner stories come from before we were 10. They're very old stories and they get triggered. And if I'm not conscious of that, I will push away people who trigger me. So the first thing, you know, is simply to become conscious of that, to face into that. What do I run towards <clears throat> and what do I run away from? In church, out of church, you know, what experiences, what people trigger me into feeling not good enough? Um, and, you know, biblically, we know that Jesus has addressed that. So that's our first form of defence that, you know, we're fully known and fully loved. But it takes a long time for some people to for that to sink from head to heart. And as a pastor or a psychologist, we often have to remind people of that over and over again. But, you know, it's we're never going to get rid of that. And an example I use in training is I'll often say to people, I can read your mind... And then some people blush, some people get very scared because, um, of course, I can't. But then I say, you know, if you're educated in this country, I'm going to say a sentence and, and I will be able to predict what comes up in your mind. So then I say, Mary had a little. Now, for most people, what's going to pop up? The word lamb. Lamb. And, you know, mm. can you remember consenting to learning that ridiculous nursery rhyme? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have capacity to learn it? Did you choose to learn it? You know, you might even be a vegetarian and you really might hate thinking about lamb. Um, and however, you know, even if I said that again and you made a determined effort to think beef or vegan pie, um, you're still going to think lamb and it will take a lot of effort to push that away because it's been wired into your brain and even when you have advanced dementia and you're sitting in a nursing home not recognising your family, if I walk in and say Mary has a little, you will say lamb. I mean, how scary mm. is that? Um, <laughs> so, you know, if something as simple as that can set you up, just think how much more the world and people in it are setting you up to be triggered mm. into certain thought patterns because of how you've mm. been wired as a child. So many of us will have feelings of rejection, abandonment from our childhood and people that trigger that feeling are going to make us want to punish them push them away, avoid them, all those sorts of things. So, so that's, the, that's the struggle. And the first way of addressing it is to be conscious of it, to acknowledge it, to talk to your friends and pastor about it. And, as, and that's liberating in itself. You know, I've noticed around those kinds of people or around that person in my home group they just make me instantly feel on the offensive or the defensive. 
they make me angry mm. without even when they knock the door I feel angry and you know when we have the freedom to start acknowledging this stuff we can stop punishing ourselves for it and and then we kind of we know don't we if we know that's going to happen and when we're really brave and courageous we can start acknowledging that to each other that there's something about our relationship that doesn't go well and actually let's mm. pray about that let's think about that let's let's wonder let's be curious about that you know what yeah. what's happening and I'm sorry because it isn't personal it's something to do with Mary had a little lamb I didn't choose this stuff but it's happening all the time and we can't you know sometimes we do get miraculously cured of these things you know occasionally I've had thought patterns or feelings about people that God has taken in an instant we forget that he does do that that should always be our primary go-to you know Lord heal me of that but actually until you know what that is you can't ask for healing mm. You know, being conscious of that. And, and I think as, as being brave to kind of speak the truth in love around, you know, I've noticed that I'm a bit too much for you or I'm a bit difficult for you or, you know, just kind of having some of those brave conversations and, and modelling those, I think, would be a massive start. But I think, yeah, I... I... No, there's, I mean, there's so much in what you've said then. It's, it's superb, and I'd love to. I love this, Joe. So, you're, I mean, we should you, do a just, series, Jess. We'll do a weekly, yeah. shall we? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I would be up for that. But I can just, I can sense people listening to you, and almost like scales and pieces of armor falling off as they think, ah, oh, someone under. I'm not alone. Someone understands. Someone's able to put language to this, which is the gift of, um, of you and the gift of psychology and someone with your experience of sitting with so many different, uh, even I love your language, so many different flawed humans throughout their life and realizing the similarities that we all share, that we're not as, you know, unique and special in our struggles as we like to think we are but so there's lots of love to talk about so uh, just to kind of underline that that you talk about identifying the the areas or the people that we want to move towards and the areas and people that we want to move away from and so the first kind of step or courageous step is to acknowledge become self-aware enough to notice what's going on internally um, with any given situation and person um, and then I suppose having the, the level of acceptance of yourself and security in your love before God to ask the question, why? Why do I feel like that? Is that a valid question or is that kind of t delving into the past that we just don't know about? How helpful is a why question? It is. And sometimes an answer will be really evident. So some, you know, someone might have been traumatized by fire and a fireman in church might make them feel triggered. That's a really stupid example mostly it's not like that I, I would say even as a psychologist with two degrees in psychology um, and having been a Christian for quite a long time I it wasn't until I was about 45 that I became truly self-aware um, I think I I really didn't understand a lot of my besetting patterns so I think a better question is is what's happening what what what's happening in what contexts and it doesn't really matter so a lot of people have been in therapy for 77 years um trying to work out the why and i often say to them if i could answer that question if i could say to you you know they want to know why am i like this because if i knew i could change it 
that isn't the truth. Um, if I can say to you, you know, on this day, um, this happened and that's why you're like that, they wouldn't change anything, actually. Mm. <laughs> because the people that do know why they're like that are still like that. So I think mm. a better question is the what. What, are, what am I thinking? What am I feeling in these certain contexts? And really spending some time noticing that. Um, I think another really great starting point. So the, the flawed human language is actually from the ACT model, which I find fascinating. Um, so they, they teach us a lot to talk about us flawed humans. So even as psychologists, us flawed humans. So it's not me the expert and you the rubbish one. It's us as flawed humanity. As Christians, we have an explanation for that. No one else does. No, no practitioner can tell me why we're flawed. Um, you know, we know now even um, the, the psychologists that work in things like self-esteem, they know that there's no point in trying to, to give people positive affirmations or build their self-esteem. It doesn't work. And actually what we're finding is for some people it makes them more depressed and anxious and I think the, under wow. the understanding is you know well have you tried this so I often say to people if you want to test this out stand naked in front of the mirror and say I'm beautiful and I've totally got this see what your mind says about that <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll see why positive affirmations don't work because your mind will come up with 97 reasons why you're not beautiful um, even if you are objectively beautiful um, which I'm sure many people listening are so there's this sense that I do one positive affirmation and my mind tells me seven back so that, that can increase negativity so what ACT would say is we we notice and then we separate ourselves from the thoughts. So a sense of, I have on my computer on a post-it note, which you can't see, it says, I am a rubbish psychologist, I am stupid, um, people are very unwise to seek out my treatment, I will fail. Um, so that would surprise a lot of people and probably concern them. Um, but, but that's a very act congruent thing. That saves my brain having to do that with every client. I can just give that post-it note a nod when I notice those thoughts come up and get on with what I'm doing. Okay. But mo I mean, so most people, the reason that I guess feels counterintuitive is perhaps because we've been conditioned with the language of self-esteem for a few decades now. Um, but... But but um, so I find it fascinating that you that you'd say that uh, people are acknowledging that that has failed, that isn't working because our brains react in the way they do. Even the kind of secular acceptance of the concept of being flawed, because of course if if we're flawed, that suggests that there was an original unflawed version, a perfect version we've we've come from or fallen from. Um, but so in nodding to that post-it note. The, the self-esteem speak world would tell me that that's going to harm me to say that stuff to myself. So how do you move past that, that being the mirror that you stare at that actually constantly shouts at you and stops you having any confidence to do anything? Yeah, it doesn't shout at me. It's my friend. It's like, I'm doing <laughs> okay. so It's like, I'm just giving it a nod. You know, I know you're there. I know you're saying that stuff. But you know what? Here I am speaking to Jez anyway, because, you know, my mind says, you're talking nonsense. 
everybody that's listening thinks you're talking nonsense and you know you could be like many people will be like, oh joe no you're not you're a great expert in the field everyone's gonna love you my mind is still gonna say joe you're talking nonsense and he's saying that because he knows you're talking nonsense and feels you need the reassurance so so we 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 get in those games don't we with people and what we know is reassurance increases anxiety so it's a really important thing not to play that game. It's not going to help anyone. It's just going to make them addicted to reassurance, whether it's a five-year-old that always needs you to say, you are a great boy, you are the best in the class. Well, you're not, are you? That's not the truth. And, um, you know, see, children then just become very unable to self-soothe and very unable and very unresilient. And we see adults like that who just constantly need affirming. Um, And it's unattractive and a bit repellent, actually. Insecurity Mm. is hard. And so often people are insecure, then they're constantly seeking reassurance, and then they find they repel people. which actually is a counter, a self-fulfilling prophecy. No, no one likes me, um, so I have to keep asking you, do you like me? Am I okay? Did I do that okay? That's a bit boring for you. So you kind of find ways of not having to do that. And then I think, see, he doesn't like me. I knew it all along. So then I'll stop trying with people. So this is the sadness around these patterns. So Actually, I keep getting distracted, but the starting point is values. The starting point in ACT, and I describe them, so in multiple sclerosis, you get steroids to attack your relapses. So I call values psychological steroids. So they really give you a a big zoom, a big motivation. Uh, They energize you. Often a big problem for people Christians and otherwise is we've lost contact with what and who is important Um, so we've got this constant problem where um, our thoughts and feelings are in competition with our values so if I make any important step forward according to my values and by values I mean what do you want to stand for what's truly important in your heart what and who is important to you if no one else is looking. Um, So um, when we start to be really conscious of that, we can start to make moves towards that. So if my marriage is important, a really small move would be to make my husband a cup of tea. Um, Even doing that, my mind throws up, why bother? When did he last make you a cup of tea? What's the point of this relationship? It's too hard. Them over there, they look like they've got an easy marriage. So just going to make my husband a cup of tea can produce a hemorrhage of negative thoughts and feelings if I'm aware of that. And what's going to happen if I buy into those thoughts of why bother? He does nothing for me. What's the point of all of this? You know, if I start to believe that as the truth, well, I won't do it. And if day after day I buy into those thoughts, our marriage will go downhill, not uphill. So, um, you know, the Bible says things about that. It says, you know, think about good things, be grateful, give thanks. But we're constantly in this battle between I know what's important, 
I want to make steps towards it, but the barriers, the, the saboteurs are these thoughts and feelings. So one of the things we do in ACT is we get people really conscious of their values. So what and who is important? What, and as Christians, we have another layer, which is what's important to me is what's important to Jesus. What's important to Jesus? And we can start there as our values. And unfortunately, you know, most of those things marry up. So marriage is important to Jesus. Family is important. Church is important. Connection is important. Love is important. So, you know, a lot of the values that are common to humanity are also important to Jesus. If, if you look at, if you Google, what's the top 10 values? There'll be things like kindness, helpfulness, um, connection. So, you know, often they marry up and I, I will often use 1 Corinthians 13 in my secular practice. People say, I don't think I love my wife anymore. You know, what is love? Who do I love? And it's like, well, turn there. You know, first of all, love is behavior. <laughs> love is not a feeling. Mm. If we rely on our feelings and our thoughts to guide our behavior, we'll end up in trouble. And that's the trouble that we people end up in when they come and see me so they're often using their thoughts and feelings as a guide um, and the trouble we have with that is our thoughts and feelings are ever-changing so I woke up before my husband woke up my thoughts and feelings were like I'm so in love we have such a happy marriage then he opened his eyes <laughs> then he annoyed me then I thought this relationship isn't working, you know, bearing in mind we're at five past seven. Um, so <laughs> which of those thoughts and feelings do I use as my guide? You know, I am deeply in love or I am deeply unin love and this relationship isn't working, you know. Oh, my goodness. What am I going to use as a guide? So when we come back to use your values as a guide, I know then that marriage and love and serving him and serving God is important to me. They are my values. So that then motivates me to move towards what's important. So the ACT principles are get in contact with your values, develop small action patterns towards them, form habits that are good. The more we, we do something, the easier it is to do it. So mm. if I... I'm constantly feeling threatened and behaving in defensive ways. And the most common form of defense, if I feel threatened by you, I put you down. So, you know, if I feel scared or irritated, it's like, oh, that Jez Blake, he's arrogant. Um, you know, I can see right through him. He's superficial. He doesn't care about me. So that's the most common form of defense. And, and if I allow my mind to be investing in those patterns of unkindness, gossip, slandering, putting other people down, being negative, my mind will get really good at it. So that will become easier every day. It will become easier to be spiteful. And by the time I'm 85, I will be a naturally spiteful person. Um, and of course, the opposite to that is submitting to the Holy Spirit and allowing our behavior patterns to become habitually towards our values, towards the Bible or a, a secular context would be, yeah, towards our values, towards what and who's important. So ACT First does a lot of work on values, what do I want to stand for? What and who's important? And then we notice the barriers to that are thoughts and feelings. So we then teach people how to take distance from thoughts. 
So one of them would be, yeah, just write them on a post-it note, give them a nod when they come up. Um, and then we teach people to sit with their feelings. So that's a massive concept. In the West, we are incredibly intolerant of distress. We hate it. So, so much so that we cannot allow children to lose anymore because, oh my goodness, we can't expose them to disappointment. Um, if they fall over, we have to pick them up super quick. Um, we hate it when our children feel sad or angry. We want to magic it away by reassuring them that um, everything is okay with the world. We tell lies. I hear parents say, of course I won't die when a child is worried about that. You know, that's a lie. Um, we have to learn to show children how to sit with emotional discomfort, but most adults can't. And so then we're hugely invested in avoiding and running away from difficult feelings. And that again, in turn, if you create in me difficult feelings, I'll run from you. So anything that evokes difficult feelings in me, I can't deal with. So act very much speaks into that as a barrier. So we teach people very simple ways. It's not hard. Um, ways to notice, notice and name is the easiest starting point. So um, here's anxiety. I'm talking to you. I feel anxious. I don't have to stop talking to you until I feel confident. If I did that, I would never do anything. So often that's what people are doing. They're waiting for bad feelings to go and turning down experience, the experiences that evoke overwhelm or anxiety rather than recognizing that we have to do those things in order for those feelings to become easier. And sometimes they'll never become easier. So for me, I speak internationally on many different contexts. I still feel anxious. Um, the musicians that I work with call that um, pre-performance buzz. Yeah. So um, become a friend of theirs rather than an enemy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that maybe helps. But you know, didn't you feel anxious when you came on Zoom? Like, what's this going to be like? I'm sure your mind said, you know, will it be weird? I don't know. What did your mind say? He came on this podcast. Oh, I think every time I do a podcast, I think I don't know what I'm going to ask. Are we going to have stuff to talk about? <laughs> and you do. You kind of worry it. And, but I mean, I've I've heard I've heard um, people say elsewhere that um, when we push through negative barriers of fear or anxiety, and we do the thing anyway, we, our fear doesn't go away, but we we become convinced that we are braver than we realised, and so we can do it. You you start to realise I can handle this, and I can. I don't need to be squashed by this emotion. But I suppose for a lot of people there, so what about the experience, Joe, where you talk about anxiety, where someone's anxious reaction increases to the point of panic attack and then their world seems to, because I know plenty of people um, whose world seems to get smaller and sm uh, smaller, smaller and smaller because they've had panic attacks and anxiety is not a, a friend that they can handle. What, what, um, what advice do you have to people in that position? So what avoidance increases anxiety. That's a really important principle. So I work with lots of people who were taught in childhood to go home, 
So, um, you know, if a child, and a lot of this, the problem with anxiety is, I'm a, I'm a, I would describe myself as an anxious person. Lots of people find that hard to believe. But I experience a lot of anxiety. I most days I wake up feeling that feeling that I would label as anxiety for no apparent reason. My life is pretty good, really. Um, so what there's two choices there. Always when anxiety comes up, um, and anxiety is the start, panic is often the result of perpetual avoidance. So patterns that have started a long time ago. For some of us, we have a lot of genetic anxiety. So our parents might have been anxious. If we had an anxious parent, our parent will have encouraged us probably to avoid. So if you, if you feel anxious about going to that party, you don't have to go. And that would have probably helped the parent as well. We'll stay home. I had a client once that said, um, you know, his mum always said to him, let's go home then. <laughs> so that's his most familiar negative um, thought is he feels anxiety and in his mind he feels, let's go home then. So we've had to do a lot of, I am noticing anxiety. I am noticing the thought, let's go home then. And then we can start to, one of the act questions is if I buy into that thought as absolute truth, what am I going to do? And will that take me towards my values in the long term? So if I've got a value of connection, if I buy into that thought, go home, I can't cope with this anxiety, I'll have a panic attack. So there's a thought component to panic. And then there's a feeling component. The more we avoid anything, the more anxiety we will feel. So if you know what how people get panic disorder and end up being agoraphobic is one step at a time. So, you know, you wake up one day, you feel anxious about going out, and so you or you feel anxious about catching the train. So you don't go on the train, you go on the bus. And then you have a panic attack on the bus. So you realize then you can't go on public transport because you'll have a panic attack. So then you can only go on your bicycle. And then you start to feel panicky about being in traffic. So you realize you can only walk. And then you feel panicky walking. So you realize you can't go out. Actually, to avoid this feeling of panic, you just have to stay in. And then you realize that actually even going upstairs makes you feel panicky. So you stay downstairs. So sometimes when I meet people, they've developed that pattern over many years and now they're just in one room, in one chair. Sometimes they've even ended up in terrible positions where they're using a commode um, because they're too anxious to leave that space. So I think that's the principle. Avoidance will always make things worse. So that's where ACT can intervene and we show people how to learn one tiny step at a time to what you're describing, feel the fear and do the behaviour anyway. And we do that tiny little steps for some people. But all of us, that principle is the same. You know, if I feel anxious about praying out loud, I stop doing it, my anxiety goes away. So in the short term, it works. As humans, we're not stupid. As humans, we do what works. So if a behavior is happening, we can look at it and we can ask, why is that working for me? What is it? 
helping me avoid and it's often a bad feeling so if you create in me feelings of insecurity the easiest way to stop that is to not see you so those of us that get rejected and struggle with that we can often reassure ourselves this isn't personal you know it's not me they're rejecting it's the bad feeling within themselves and that's happening all the time so um yeah that's how we get so so helpful so so practical so so needed in so many areas of people's lives it seems it strikes me i don't know if this is a helpful comparison but you said this is something we experience in all sorts of um areas of our lives i know from friends who struggle with ocd they talk about um the most the thing that they're obsessively worrying about reassurance doesn't work because they say their OCD brain finds a new thing to worry about or a new thing to to kind of obsess over and so they learn that reassurance doesn't work instead you know that my friend was taught to develop a, a structure of hierarchy of ex exposure hierarchy where they could slowly introduce themselves to things and so it seems that across a range of different um what's the word for it like maladies of the mind um clinical disorders I guess um some people would would call that and and interestingly that's just the the principle so that's the principle that act would acknowledge that the reason act is so good is it helps those of us that would just describe us ourselves as flawed and it helps those in the most severe in the middle of most severe clinical disorders so deep clinical depression anxiety ocd um the novel that you talked about surviving her is all about the principle of how even things that look very dark on the outside, like it's, it's about emotional coercion. So the man in that novel has learned from a history of trauma and anxiety that the way to soothe his anxiety is to control other people. So all aspects of controlling behavior are rooted in trying to soothe difficult feelings in ourselves. So if you feel anxious and insecure, that's going to manifest itself in jealousy. So you'll think, I'm so worthless and useless, my wife will run off with someone else. That's the natural consequence. I am so worthless and stupid, she's made a mistake choosing me. So as soon as she sees somebody better, um, so any man from 18 to 80 is gonna be a threat. Um, so how do you then manage those feelings of jealousy? Well, the most obvious way is to stop her going out because that's soothing, isn't it? If she goes out, your mind is gonna say, she'll go off with someone else. So you start by saying, shall we have an evening in? You know, you'd, you don't need to go out with those friends. We have everything within our relationship. And, and when you're first in love, that feels like a lovely prospect. I am so loved and wanted that my husband doesn't ever want me to go out. So often men, women buy into that pattern. And then it grows because um, patterns that are to control anxiety will always grow. Avoidance always grows. Control always grows. But, you know, control looks negative on a camera but it's it's just trying to control your negative emotions so and then it gets bigger and bigger and that's what the novel is about how a man from a history of difficult feelings learns to control his jealousy and anxiety by stopping his wife 
and um, and we judge that very negatively emotional coercion and and we should you know it's not ideal but we don't judge so negatively the same outworking of that behavior in overwork so the man that is so anxious about performance and insecure about his work performance who stays at work 18 hours a day works on a Sunday never looks after his family we don't judge him quite so negatively we describe him as driven um, or successful whereas actually he's running away from his anxiety in the same way as the emotionally coercive man by a different behavior or the person that is so anxious that they've found running soothes them or going to the gym or overeating or drinking too much wine or the list goes on OCD rituals they all have the same root which is running away from difficult feelings which is why act is such a win because it shows us how to face in to difficult feelings. Then we don't have to run away from them or soothe ourselves in sinful ways or difficult ways. Mm. That's really, really helpful. So we've got uh, just kind of in, in the summary that I've kind of got in my head from what you're saying then when it comes to understanding the actor model is being learning to become aware of our reactions to things, accepting those reactions and then um, deciding the values that we want to deciding what our values are and how we want to live and then um just deciding whether we listen to our thinking so it's then about mind and behavior um how whether we listen to the what thoughts we're going to listen to or what behavior we're going to have um i may have just finished that kind of loop for me no you're right so let's operationalize that so with with we start with our values so yeah, the easiest way to think about that for me is I want to be a supportive mum. So that's an important value for me is being a supportive mum, okay? So um, then we can ask, what's the smallest action I could do in the service of that to move towards that value? So what's the smallest thing I could do in the next hour to, to show that that's an important value in my life. So it might be to text my son who's just got married and say, um, what's it like going back to work with a wife? Um, I'm just showing him I'm aware of that. I'm aware that first week can be quite difficult and challenging. So, um, so there's the value, there's the action. What is always 100% pretty much gonna happen if I try and make a value-driven action is I'll get difficult thoughts and feelings. You can try it, you know, think I'll go to the gym this evening. I will make a phone call to that difficult parishioner. Your mind will kick in with thoughts and feelings. I don't want to do that. What's the point? When did they last serve me? You might have anxiety, disgust, disappointment. So there's always this kind of um, competing thing, values-driven action versus thoughts and feelings. And we can't get rid of that. We can't get rid of our flawed condition that brings up difficult thoughts and feelings. So we've got to stop trying. We've got to recognize that those little friendly saboteurs are gonna be there, whatever I do. And I might be able to quash them for five minutes by not doing that value-driven action. That will sure stop that. So if you have a difficult phone call to make, you get the thoughts and feelings like, I can't do it, I won't cope, 
they'll be mean to me, anxiety, fear, anger. Sure, if you don't make that call, then all those feelings will go away. That's that's a win for you in the short term. See, often things are, are wins in the short term. Escape, avoidance, control are wins in the short term. But you can ask yourself, if that's the way I do it every day, will that be a win in the long term? Will I be a supportive partner? Will I be a good pastor? Will I be a good leader? Will I be um, a connected teacher if I keep this pattern going? And often the answer in the long term is no. So if you keep doing what works in the short term, that will often have negative long-term consequences. So um, any behavior you see that isn't productive or positive will have started as a as a short-term soother. So um, so yeah, in ACT, we find the values, really get conscious of them, do a lot of work with them, um, wonder about them, make sure they really are your values, because a lot of the things we think are our values might just be what I've been told women should care about, or what I've been told um, psychologists should do. Um, so, you know, they might be shoulds, they might not be heartfelt values. So that's yeah. the first piece of work. Who am I? What do I really want in life? What's really important to me? And then you can really start to think, what would that look like on a camera? If I was being driven by my values all month, what are the small outworkings at home, in church, at work, in my health, in my well-being? What tiny actions will that look like? And then you can start to see the thoughts and feelings and then ACT teaches you how to sit with the feelings um, and how to relate differently to the thoughts. So it's, you can't get rid of them, you can't suppress them, you can't reassure or positively affirm them. They don't work in the long term, those strategies. You can't drink them away, eat them away. They're all short term strategies, they don't work. And so we've got to learn to relate differently to them. Yeah. Well, and it's part of our problem, something I'm thinking about, maybe it's the, uh, a sabotaging thought, but something I'm thinking about often is that we, we, have, we place such a high value on what we call authenticity or emotional authenticity, so that if I don't feel something, but I do something anyway, we call that hypocrisy. Um, and, and so we have a, such a, a big problem with that as an idea. I know when I was talking to a married couple, and the, the man knew that to be, be a better husband, he needed to say more affirming things to his wife, but he also knew he didn't feel those emotions that would lead to those words. And so thought, well, I can't say that because it's just fake. You know, we hear that from time to time. I can't do that. It's just fake. What's your, so you think having clear values overrides emotions? And yeah, so is that, is that that's what I, I hear you saying? I would start to kind of talk with him about, oh, why is he even in the room? Why is he in the room with his wife? Like, and I'm guessing there must be some value for him in building a, a marriage, overcoming some challenges. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in the room. So I would start there. So, so why are you in the room? I, and I'm guessing, I don't know, could you answer for him or, you know? Well, well, yeah, I think because he'd want to save his marriage. Yeah, he cares that he, he's, he, he loves his wife and does want, yeah. OK, 
okay so he loves his wife he wants to save his marriage maybe if he's a christian he might want to honor god by saving his marriage um if you're not a christian then you're most people will want to have a good marriage and enjoy a good marriage so there's the value it's about um <laughs> it's about loving my wife so then i would start to ask well how what would that look like on a camera you know when you look at men who you aspire to be like or when you watch films where you think yeah that's a good husband in practice or when you read the bible and see that you know what would that look like on a camera for you so um lots of men do not have a natural thankfulness or a, um, a natural enthusiasm and and actually often i agree that looks a bit fakey and and i think that's yeah i wouldn't encourage people to do things so you know if my husband looks dreadful and um old and worn out then I don't think it's the right thing to say to him, you're looking really marvellous this morning. You know, um, I was, you reminded me of, I don't know, Mel Gibson on a good day. I, I don't know, you know, that's, that's a lie. And I don't think you should be encouraging people to lie. But I would be wanting to know from the wife, you know, what, what things, what behaviours could her husband do within his natural repertoire? Or what behaviours he's ever done, what behaviours he did when he first met her that that felt true to him? And and I would just try and pick out some of that stuff and, and say, to say, you know, we've all got productive behaviours. So, like, for me, I'm saying, you know, love for me is making cup of tea in the morning when I don't feel like it. And, um it's hard and you know mm. but that's that's me saying to my husband I am thinking about you before I go to work or it might be you know um bothering to get the milk when you're out and about because actually you know you're running short rather than expecting your wife to do it so I think it's really breaking it down into small achievable actions but it, it's being really clear about the why why am I doing it? It's connecting mm. it with the important value. And it's connecting it with a long standing. Like not many people get up in the morning. I haven't met any who think my long term plan is to be divorced, be a drug addict, be an alcoholic, be a lazy, whatever. You know, um, not many people think I just can't wait for when I leave work and people say, thank goodness that Jezfield doesn't exist in our workplace anymore. You know, that's such a relief. He was a manipulative, lazy bum. You know, I don't think me, many people in their heart of hearts want that. I think most of us want people to admire us and think well of us. So I guess um, I would start with that. You know, what behaviours, if you did every day for the next five years, might improve your family life and and what would he like her to be doing you know is she noticing those small wins if they both want to build a good marriage but you know if one person doesn't that's much harder but yeah so I would start there and what would that look like on a camera that's a good question I use a lot what would love what would building your marriage look like on a camera yeah, that's really helpful. And, and actually, the way that people answer that will be 
different depending on their personality, temperament and values, upbringing, all of that. That's what I, I pick up from that as well. Joe, we have run out of time. Like this, there's been so much. There's so, so much in here that has been so practical, so helpful, so reassuring and encouraging. Like you, like we said during the conversation, we're going to have to get, we're going to have to get you back and and have lots more of these conversations because there's clearly so much good and gold in you. We're so so grateful for you taking the time to speak to us on the podcast and all all the people who listen to it. Um, I'm so incredibly grateful and uh, I pray that God continues to bless your ministry and work that you do. Is there anything that's on your heart or mind that you'd like to share just before we finish? I think people just need to know they're not alone. This is how we roll. And the more you're able to acknowledge that, the more authentic you will be and the more you'll be attractive to other people. What's truly attractive is people who are genuinely open and honest about themselves. I believe that's such a win um, that when you're able to say, this is a struggle for me, my marriage isn't perfect, I'm not a great parent. These difficult thoughts and feelings come up for me. The more people will feel able to open up to you and then you will experience true connection, um, which is what most of us crave. Well, I hope you found that helpful. I know I certainly did. It's a conversation I'm going to be listening back to several times to go over so much of the, the nuggets and wisdom and insights that Joe shares just in validating our experience as human beings that hey we're not alone and we're not as unique in our struggles as we sometimes fear that we might be so really really good a summary of some of the main talking points from today's conversation is in the description to the episode along with links to joe's novels that she's written and other information about acceptance commitment therapy thanks for being with us today i look forward to bringing you more conversations about the Christian life and leadership. See you again soon. Bye.